0: Easter is the most important holiday of the year for Christians, uh, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the defeat of death, yay, Uh, Christ (laughs) defeated death um, by him for us and for the world. Our greatest enemy is death. So much of our life is oriented around death, avoiding, evading, ignoring it, and it has been conquered. Uh, We don't need to ignore it. We We can face it head on. Um, because of Jesus' resurrection, all who take up their cross and follow Jesus have the sure promise of eternal life in a renewed world. Uh, We acknowledge the world is not yet renewed, but with Christ's resurrection, the future renewal is now certain. A big thank you to Stephanie Kanugi uh, for creating the art for this week. A cool fact about Stephanie, she is a member of the San Francisco Gem and Mineral Society. Uh, She cut these stones herself in the art. Um, Here is Stephanie's artist statement. For our Holy Week Easter sermon art, I chose to cut two sedimentary rocks, symbolic of the passing of time and the layered stories that led up to the time of Jesus. The round stone reminded me of the garden tomb and represents the eternal nature of God. The larger slab on which it rests speaks to how the life of Christ came after years of faith and prophecy fulfilled. In his perfect life, lived and sacrificed, we can celebrate, especially during the season of Easter. Beautiful statement and beautiful art. We've just begun working through the Gospel of John together as a church, and Stephanie's reflection is particularly fitting for today's passage in John chapter 2, because according to John, when Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered this story specifically. Uh, Prior to the resurrection, so much of Jesus' life made little sense uh, to the disciples. Uh, The Gospels don't hide how confused the disciples are throughout Jesus' ministry. They don't really know much of what's going on. And that's because each scene in the Gospels and really every story that came before in the Bible taken alone is like a single line of sediment. In those rocks uh, with its own shape and color and texture, its own history and circumstance and experience. And it's not until Jesus' death and resurrection that it all made sense, that it all begins to make sense. And so I'd like for us to take time this morning to read John chapter 2 in light of Easter and ask ourselves, what is it about this story in particular of all stories that came alive to the disciples when Jesus came alive again on Resurrection Sunday. Tabitha is going to read our scripture this morning from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22.
1: John two thirteen through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling ox and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be be to God.
0: God. Dear Father, we are often like the disciples, befuddled by Jesus. He comes into our life, uh, he makes wine one week, and then he overturns tables the next. Father, would you grant us clarity? Around who your son is, uh, around who you are. Uh, Would you give us faith? Uh, Would you speak to us this morning and open our eyes? We love you. Thank you for loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two kinds of people in the world uh, people who complain, and people who ask to speak to a manager. Maggie and I are definitely just people who complain. Like if we get bad service at a restaurant, we will go on and on about it and talk about it amongst ourselves. We will never, ever ask to speak with a manager. I don't think I've ever actually uttered those words. Um, And heads up, if you are out with us and you ask to speak with a manager, we might never go out with you again. (laughs) Like we'll have you over at our house for dinner, but like we're not gonna risk that discomfort And then if you make a scene, if you start yelling, if you turn over tables, if you create a whip with the like cloth napkins, like middle school style, like the stings really bad, we will definitely never go out with you again. But we won't tell you directly. We'll just talk about you. Um, (laughs) Maybe you've grown up around the Bible. And so this scene has become normal to you but it's not normal, right? There's a big difference between reading about it and experiencing it. And so I want to take a moment to imagine ourselves as one of the disciples. You're walking into the temple confident, right? Your newly chosen rabbi and leader is with you. He just turned water into wine a few days ago. This is the funnest Messiah ever, right? (laughs) And so you're one of these disciples buzzing off your first week with Jesus, and you walk into the temple, nothing there is surprising to you. You've been to the temple at Passover before. It's just like it's always been, the money changers, the animals, the chaos. Around 100,000 extra people flock to the city of Jerusalem during these major feasts during Passover. And so, of course, it's crazy. Jesus has been to the temple at Passover before, too. And so what happened? Why does Jesus go crazy? And I'm wondering if, like me with you, when you asked to speak with the manager, like, am I beginning to reconsider my decision to leave everything and follow this man, right? What is he doing? What will convince me to stay with him? Well, John tells us in the text two things that led the disciples to believe in Jesus. To believe that he was indeed the long-foretold Messiah and that he was worth following. And we can see those two clues in verse 17 and 22 when John repeats the phrase, the disciples remembered. He uses that same phrase twice. And so in verse 17 at the end of the first paragraph, John writes, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then in verse 22, John uses the same phrase again, John, uh, when therefore, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that Jesus had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so verse 17 helps the disciples make sense of Jesus in the moment when the temple cleansing happened. And then verse 22 helps the disciples later when they're trying to understand Christ's death and resurrection somehow this scene put it together for them and so maybe this scene will help us too let's walk through it so first how did the disciples make sense of jesus in the moment what made jesus so angry uh, one commentator calls it legitimate happenings in illegitimate spaces legitimate happenings in illegitimate spaces and so first these are legitimate happenings there's no reason to think that jesus is upset in principle by people selling sacrificial animals or exchanging currency, even for a fee, even if they're making a little bit of money off of it. And that's because, practically speaking, somebody had to do it. As I said, during Passover, many, many thousands of extra-Jewish people came to Jerusalem, and they often come from faraway places. And since Passover involved sacrificing healthy animals... Uh, bringing them with you on a long journey was completely impractical, and so more likely you would bring money and then buy those animals when you got there. Uh, this was also the time of year when adult men paid the temple tax. However, you couldn't just pay in any Roman currency with whatever like, province that you came from. It needed to be all the same, and so there were money changers there to exchange whatever local province you were coming from with the right currency so you could pay the tax. Now, of course, there might have been some price gouging, some priests there lining their pockets, uh, making money off of uh, faithful worshipers, but in principle, none of this is illegitimate if done fairly. It all had to be done somewhere. However, for Jesus, the problem was where they were doing it. Uh, Legitimate happenings in illegitimate spaces. What does Jesus complain? In verse 16, "'Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade.'" The temple is for worship, not business. Commerce isn't wrong, but don't do it here. Not in the temple courtyards where people are preparing their hearts to meet God in prayer. And what's more, this area is called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. It's actually the only part of the temple complex where non-Jews could come and worship. And so there was uh, some Sense that the Jews didn't really care about Gentile worship, and so they said, "Well, who needs this space? We'll just take over their worship space." If you want to feel a tiny bit of Jesus' rage, uh, don't don't imagine yourself at a restaurant like I mentioned before. Imagine yourself at your father's funeral. You're at your father's funeral, and just outside the service in the atrium, you discover that one of your friends, who's come to support you, is recruiting customers. She's set up a table with business cards and free samples. How would you feel in that circumstance? What would you do if one of your friends was doing that? This is your father. If you loved your father, you couldn't stand by. You would step in and say something. You would be angry. Well, the God of Israel is Jesus's father. This is his house. The temple is his father's house. The one place on earth where God comes to meet his people. And so, in the days leading up to this, when he was traveling to Jerusalem, one could imagine Jesus feeling so excited on his way up the hill. He was reciting the Psalm of Ascents, which is what the Jews did as they approached Passover. Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. But then he comes to the house of the Lord, and it's a circus. With people waiting in lines, bartering with vendors, the sounds and smells of animals, it's awful. Even the simplest conscience would be appalled. Imagine Jesus' conscience. It was too much for him. For the dignity of his father, he had to do something, and he did. When the disciples saw Christ's rage, they were shocked, for sure. But John tells us they were also reminded of Psalm 69. A messianic Psalm, Psalm 69, verse 9: Zeal for your house has consumed me. This sacred holy violence was the reaction of a Messiah. This is how Messiahs acted. Zechariah 14:21 imagines a future in the age of the Messiah when there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And how will this happen? Through the violent cleansing of the temple. So Malachi 3 talks about the coming of the Lord to the temple, uh, Malachi 3.1, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But it won't be a day of celebration, not at first, for who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That means that the cleansing that he brings will require caustic, harsh solutions. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver until they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, so that then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so for disciples steeped in Holy Scripture jesus behavior as shocking and frightening as it was actually strengthened their faith in him it's a good reminder to us that a messiah who never gets angry is not a messiah worth following a half-hearted jesus is not a jesus who can get the job done jesus zeal proved that he was the man to follow what came next though wouldn't make sense until after christ's resurrection Of course, the temple officials are obviously not pleased with Jesus' anger, but rather than attack Jesus' actions directly, which are above reproach, they question his authority. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They asked for a sign to justify Jesus' reaction, and he basically replies, oh, I'm just getting started. Destroy this temple, In three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews reply, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Jesus' challenge to the authorities would be like someone saying to Congress, tear up the United States Constitution and I'll write a better one tonight. Or someone telling Apple, have your customers throw away all of their iPhones in the trash. I'll make a brand new one and have it to them by next week. There's just no way that you can do that. It has taken years of thought, prayer, planning, politics, fundraising, labor to build this temple. And you will raise it again in three days? Don't be ridiculous. It was such an absurd claim that it probably almost disarmed his challengers the first time he said it. Uh, This guy's not a threat. He is a lunatic. And sure enough, Jesus' little stunt was not a threat. It had no real effect. It was basically performance art. That's what this was. It reminds me of those climate change activists from a few months back that were defacing famous art. I don't know if you saw that. Um, in London, two people threw tomato soup on a Van Gogh painting and then glued themselves to the wall. And it shocked the world, but the art is behind glass. And so the next day Van Gogh sunflowers were great and you could go and see them, right? That's the problem with Jesus' protest here. The sign, this sign, along with all of Jesus' other signs, it's not permanent. And so Lazarus might have been miraculously raised from the dead, but later he died. The gallons of wine from last week's wedding eventually ran out. Same here with the cleansing of the temple. You can guarantee that tomorrow, the cows and goats and money changers were all back. And it was chaos again. And so is the temple really cleansed if nothing changed? This is why Christ's death and resurrection are so vital. This is why he points ahead to his death and resurrection. I feel like this scene is often our own experience of faith and religion, where some event, some encounter, some crisis inspires us to drastically reform our lives right? To make changes, to discipline ourselves, to clean things up, and we get the help of Jesus, and he pushes things out of the courtyard. And it's helpful for a short bit, but after a few weeks or months, the chaos starts to show back up again. And before long, yet again, we're like stepping in emotional cow poop, right? During worship, during evening prayers. Jesus' zeal proved that he was the Messiah, but we need a lot more than zeal for him to be our messiah we need a permanent cleansing zeal alone doesn't save and so when jesus challenged the temple authorities to destroy this temple he knew that the temple needed to be more than cleansed it needed to be replaced and jesus had come to replace it with himself John two nineteen and 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking about the temple of his body. According to Christianity, God now dwells with his people, not in a temple, but in Jesus's body, in human flesh. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this coming of God in the flesh renders the physical temple in Jerusalem irrelevant. God now dwells with us in Jesus. Later in John chapter 4, Jesus will tell the Samaritan woman who worshiped God at a different temple, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And so where will she worship? Where do we worship? At the foot of Jesus. The book of Revelation envisions the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no temple. Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. This is good news, because no longer is God's presence confined to one people. No longer is God's presence confined to one place. No longer do we need to make annual treks with our families to a building thousands of miles away. The risen Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit, makes every place a potential temple. This place is a temple. Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am am among them. Jesus is here. And this was always God's plan. The old temple was never meant to be the final temple. It, too, was a sign, performance art, meant to point to something far greater than itself. The Bible's vision for God's presence has always been an expansive vision so that if you look in Genesis 1, God originally places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, and it's surrounded by wilderness. The Garden of Eden did not cover the earth. It was a small garden, but but it was given with the hope that humanity would cultivate and grow that garden until paradise did cover the earth. They were to push back the desert until it was no more, but instead of God's presence expanding outward, it it shrunk because sin reversed God's purpose. Adam let the serpent in and death encroached inward, and this shrank God's presence on earth. Since God cannot dwell with sin, he is holy. God gave the old covenant and the and the old temple to restate God's presence with God's people, but the law law is powerless to overcome sin's power. Sin continued to win, the temple continued to shrink. Literally, this second temple that Jesus is visiting is smaller than the original temple given to Solomon, significantly smaller. And then by 8070, so 40 years after Jesus died and was resurrected, there would be no more temple. And so Judaism now is centered around Scripture and not a place because the temple was destroyed by Rome. It was never built again. Now, some of us might say good riddance to temples, right? We're in full support of Jesus destroying the temple. Temples are superstitious. We much prefer a more generalized, like, universal religious experience. And, but why, then, does Jesus insist on building a new one? Why can't we just get rid of temples altogether? It's actually impossible to get rid of temples. Uh, there has never been a culture without temples, including our own. Even in our quite secular world, temples abound. Uh, next time you walk into Benioff Children's Hospital, like, notice the amount of money spent on magnificent pieces of art, this like huge atrium. Right? They do nothing to advance modern medicine. How is that not a temple? Right? Take a tour of the new Chase Center. Take a tour of Apple's headquarters, the infinite loop. Like, what a name for a space. How is that not a temple? Check out the atrium in your local shopping mall, right, which draws your attention upwards to the light. Think about Wall Street, Washington, Hollywood. We build temples in our world and in our hearts to wealth, health, power, fame, pleasure, family. We can't live without temples. And each of these temples, just like the Jerusalem temple, is filled with a messy and chaotic courtyard, right? The beauty and grandeur on the inside is not the whole story. There is all kinds of smells and realities outside. And that's because, just like the Jerusalem temple, every temple depends on sacrifice. That's how temples work. Righteousness comes with a price tag. We may not sacrifice animals anymore, but we sacrifice plenty. Worship costs us no matter what we worship. And so we give up money, we give up time, we give up relationship. We give up life, peace, joy, love. Our culture gives up unwanted people, marginalized people, for the sake of what we're after. And, but the thing is, we have to keep coming back. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy. And so we come back and back and back. I was reminded this week about the lure of social media for teenagers uh, who studies show are, are willing to literally give up emotional health and mental health for the sake of the affirmation that Instagram offers them. There are temples everywhere, even in our pockets. And Jesus has come to replace them all. He will replace all the temples with himself. Last week, we learned how Jesus is the God of wine. He is the God of everything. He is the God of wealth, health, power, fame, pleasure, family, justice. He is the source of everything we seek. He is the temple, the new temple, but how do we know that the new temple of Christ and Christianity won't also be marked by chaos and sacrifice like all the others? How will his temple be different? Because not only do we need a Messiah who is more than zealous, not only do we need a temple which is not confined to one people and place, we need a God who can be satisfied. We need a temple that's different. We need Jesus to do more than rearrange the chaos, push it outside, send it across the street. We need Jesus to abolish the chaos altogether, which which means that we need him to get rid of
1: sacrifice,
0: to get rid of bloody death. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. When Jesus cleanses the temple of the animals, Jesus was signaling his plan to cleanse the temple of sacrifice. No more of this. And he would do this by sacrificing himself. John two nineteen. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus can't build us a new temple without destroying the other one first. He can't get rid of animal sacrifice without replacing it. That's because sacrifice addresses a real problem, death. Sacrifice addresses scarcity and loss and sin. Death must be dealt with either by us or by a substitute, so he chooses to substitute himself. This is especially shocking in this scene, to think about the death and resurrection of Christ. And his awareness of it, given his tremendous anger at the beginning of the scene, he was so angry. He was so mad at people, at us, for corrupting his father's house. It infuriated him like almost nothing in the whole, in the whole Gospels. This is the angriest Jesus gets. And so what does Jesus do with this violent anger? He turns that violence on himself. He promises, destroy this temple. I'm going to take care of this once and for all. He confronts the religious authorities, not only in the Jerusalem temple, but in every temple. He comes into all the temples and he tells them to destroy this temple, destroy me, and I will raise up a new temple in its place a temple without chaos, a temple without sacrifice, a temple without death. And in order to do this, Jesus commits to take it all on himself, to take our sin, to take our greed and our lusts and our pride, to take our anxieties and wounds and sickness, all those things which create our divided and chaotic hearts, distracting us from life and worship. He takes it all on himself, in himself, and lays down his life so that it dies when he dies so that the old ways of relating to God through sacrifice become obsolete. We don't have to do that anymore. After the cross, no longer will we need to come to a temple every year, buying and slaughtering animals to atone for sin. No longer will we need to pay temple taxes, because salvation is free, it's already been paid for. No longer will we need to spend our lives justifying ourselves, making sacrifices to avoid death, appease death, ignore it. Think about it. What temples do you wish you were free of today? What sacrifices are you paying over and over and over again, but it's never enough? Wouldn't you love to live and worship god without fear what would it look like for death and corruption to be completely removed from your life jesus has come to set you free from death and the fear of death jesus has come to pay your way That is what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. His death and resurrection, it's not a one-off miracle. It's not just a curiosity. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised from the dead according to the scriptures. It is the pivotal moment in humanity's story when the universal tragedy of death is turned back. And so worship without sacrifice is now possible. All have sinned against God, and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. All our sacrifices are not enough. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. God sent Christ to be the once-for-all sacrifice in our place. So that now, after his death and resurrection, you can live freely. We can worship freely, without anxiety, without fear, without scarcity. Of course, we do still face death. Each of us in various ways is experiencing death and the fear of death in our life. Death is defeated, but it's not dead yet. But after Jesus, death has no teeth because we know that we persist through death. For the Christian, it is simply the moment we pass from this life to the next to live forever. And if that is the case, All that's left for us is to live life with courage, thankfulness, and joy. Following Easter, that is what we're called to, to live life with courage, thankfulness, and joy. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 8, Paul says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, things present, nor things to come powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can Paul live so fearlessly? Because Jesus died and was raised. Because Jesus ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on our behalf, and so he can walk into any space without fear, in worship, Only Jesus' death and resurrection gives him confidence to live so courageously and joyfully. Easter should have a clarifying effect on our hearts and lives. It simultaneously reminds us how much death affects what we do. Um, I've said this a couple times, but like the pandemic, the fear of death totally disrupted the whole world where governments and uh, economies were entirely reshaped because of death and the avoidance of death, for good reason. All of our lives are shaped by corruption, the avoidance of corruption, appeasing it, trying to extend life more and more. And so we're reminded of that, and then we come to Good Friday and Easter when we realize that we don't need to be afraid anymore. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with condemnation. That's 1 John 4. And we have no more condemnation, and so we can live fearlessly. Like Jesus cleansing the temple, Easter should make room for worship in our hearts. Permanent room. Because there are, life is forever. There are no more animals, no more sacrifices. If Easter is true and Jesus is alive while death remains dead, if love is perfect and joy is eternal, the space for worship is everywhere. The time for worship is always. In any place, in any setting, in any circumstance, worship is always possible because it's only a matter of time before all will be well. Following the resurrection, the disciples must have thought back on this scene and smiled. The temple he built with his death and resurrection is none other than eternal life in him. They thought Jesus was so crazy to claim that he could rebuild the temple building in three days. If only they knew that what Jesus was actually promising to do was to rebuild his body, to rebuild creation to make space for us to live forever. And so as you reflect, as we reflect, as we celebrate Easter today, what would it be like for you to experience life without fear of death? What would it be like for you to experience life without fear of scarcity, corruption, without fear of judgment? This is the resurrection life Jesus has purchased for us. This is the temple he has built. Come in to the Lord's house and be glad. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this story. We're thankful for uh, the humility of the disciples to record the story, um, to always record their doubts and confusions and Um, mistakes, and so that we might learn by them, so that we might see ourselves in them and follow their faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to follow you this morning and to follow you out of temples marked by sacrifice and self-righteousness and self-justification into the temple of the gospel, the temple of Jesus, Where there are no animals, there is no chaos, there is no death, there is only joy and gladness. Father, for those here who spend life avoiding death, pacifying it, ignoring it, Father, would they find hope in Christ, in his resurrection? That just as he was raised from the dead, so can we, if we will find ourselves in him. Father, we love you. We're thankful for this day to celebrate together, for this reminder of Easter and the resurrection of Christ. Would you make space in our hearts today to celebrate it? In Jesus' name, amen.